listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Paladin, the premier technology provider for next-generation media companies. The Paladin platform automates mission-critical functions, from creator management and payments to business intelligence and campaigns. Visit paladinsoftware.com to learn more or request a product demo. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Renee Paulisich, Global Alliance Lead at Boom. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Renee, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. It's an honor. Of it's course. A pleasure. Yeah, I'm so glad this worked out. I have to say, you have to be the most popular guy in our industry. Everyone <laughs> no, that no. I come across knows your name, knows what Boom is up to. <laughs> that is a little bit uh, <laughs> surprising, actually, but uh, it makes me very happy. So you're here in LA on a three-week tour for E3, VidCon. Exactly. You know, all sorts of meetings and events. So yeah. how has it been uh, coming out to LA? Very exciting. It's my second time. So I've been here last year for pretty much the same. Unfortunately, we hadn't didn't have the chance to go to VidCon, but I was able to meet a lot of people. And it was the first time for Oom to kind of go to a different country and say, here we are, that's what we do. You know, let's do something exciting together. And uh, from those partnerships that we started to build there, one year ago. It's nice to see how those have developed over the course of one year. And now I'm really having all kinds of really interesting discussions, not only with companies like us, so like what you call MCNs, but also with media companies, uh, content creators, all kinds of sorts of interesting partnerships. So it's very exciting. And I'm going to be very busy when I'm back in Japan. So Oom is one of Japan's leading digital entertainment companies. And your official title is Global Alliance Lead, which sounds like the coolest job in the yeah, world. Yeah, it sounds fancy. But, uh, <laughs> the first time when I got that title, when I started that team, it was just me. So sure. it was a team just myself. I was originally in talent management, so I helped building our creator network. What we do is basically talk to people outside of Japan and see if it makes sense to do something together. So it's very simple. For us, being in Japan and being basically the only company that really works with influencers in a professional way and being the biggest one, we don't have anyone to learn from. So that's why it's always very exciting to go to either US or Europe or even Southeast Asia, where there's a lot of different companies doing all kinds of things. And my job is basically to pick up those pieces of information, see if it makes sense for us to do the same things or do it a little bit differently, or yeah, how we can learn from each other. And so what are some of the partnerships that you and your team have brokered? One of the biggest ones and basically one of the most exciting ones for me is with Juki Media. We built a brand together for Japan, a digital brand called Video Pizza. And that's launched in February this year. So we met them last year and basically we felt that we can help them to grow their, their digital presence, especially on YouTube in Japan, because that's what we, that's what we do. So we have access to all their amazing UGC. Uh, we can use that content. And we kind of mix it up with Japanese uh, original content from our side. So we have a guy who is the MC of Video Pizza. And for example, do you know uh, People Are Awesome, the, mm-hmm. the channel? Yeah. So they, we would use a, a, a cool clip of someone doing something amazing. And then he would have to challenge that and try to do that himself. And obviously that would result in a funny um, comedy kind of thing. Uh, so that's the kind of mix up that we do. And that's a partnership that's really been amazing to go with. Uh, the channel is growing very fast, uh, even though we're just four months since we launched it. But it's a, a really big adventure for us. And in Video Pizza then is mostly kind of in the fail and comedy category or... Uh, yeah, very, very much very much going into the comedy part. We do have access also to their other brands. So we use some cute pet clips and kind of mix that up as well. But what we've seen so far is that the amazing kind of uh, content uh, is, is most popular on YouTube in Japan. So we're now kind of trying to create a, a challenge category. And we're also collaborating with our top YouTubers because obviously they're with us. So we easily can go to them and say, hey, you know, we have this brand. Do you want to be on our channel and kind of do something fun? So we recently did a collaboration with Hajime, which is the biggest YouTuber in Japan, five point something million subscribers. And he was a guest on Video Pizza as well. So 
we're kind of developing that aspect of the brand right now. So I want to hear a little bit more about how you made your way to UM. And oh, yeah, sure. you made your way to Japan in, in general. So <laughs> you're originally from Austria. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your story growing up and, and your early career. I was always interested in, in Japan as a country in terms of content. So I, I like anime and games, so the, the usual thing. And when I finished high school, I went to college and studied translation for, for Japanese and German. So I was originally a translator. And then that was for three years in college. And in my second year, actually by, not by accident, but I was researching a release date for a video game by Square Enix. And I checked their homepage and I saw that they have, uh, like they, they were looking for, for staff, for, mem- for new, new employees. And that was very intriguing. So I was, I clicked that and I found a, um, the, a job description for a video game tester. And I checked the requirements and I basically met all of them. So I was, okay, you know what? I'm just going to apply. It was for fun. And then I got a phone call and they asked me to come to London and work for them. And I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to do. So I went to my mom and said, you know what? I'm quitting university. I'm quitting college and I'm going to London to work for some And how did she feel about that? Oh, she was not very happy. <laughs> but uh, she made one very nice uh, and a very happy decision for me because she said, okay, you're going to do one thing. You're going to still pay your college fine, the tuition fees, because that keeps me uh, inscribed in the, in, in the college. So I have the, a chance to go back without losing those one and a half years. And that's what I did. And then I went to London and I worked for Square Enix for about a year. And they asked me to come to Japan, to their main office. Um, and so that was my dream come true, I thought, at that time. But I didn't have a college degree, so I couldn't get a visa for Japan. So in the end, I went back to college and I finished. And then I was originally planning to go there, but the contract they offered me wasn't really what I was looking for. So I decided to go to a different company and I went to Nintendo, but in Germany. So their their um, European office, Nintendo of Europe. And I had the pleasure to work on games like Mario for the Wii, uh, Xenoblade, which is a very cool uh, role-playing game, and some other really uh, fascinating titles in localization. So I helped uh, coordinating the translator process, uh, the translating teams with the teams in Japan, uh, helped the marketing teams figure out strategy for Europe, basically being some kind of middleman between uh, Japan and Europe. So for a big title at... Square Enix or Nintendo, two of the biggest game publishers in the world. How does the localization process work? How much time does it take? How many languages do they typically do? Uh, Usually for Nintendo, at that time, we had five languages uh, that were uh, like default. So we did English, German, French, Italian, and Spanish. So you have all those localized teams. You have translators, you have testers for each language, you have coordinators for each language, and then you have the localized producer who oversees the whole thing. And uh, at first I was in the German team, uh, just translating and then coordinating and then helping the whole whole process. Um, It obviously depends on the word count. So for example, Xenoblade, I think that was almost a year that we worked on that game. Because at first all the translators start playing the game. So they get familiar with the whole world, uh, what kind of taste, what kind of, uh, how the characters speak in the original languages. And then uh, you come up with all those, the, the language itself. So, okay, this character speaks like this. He uses these kind of words. He doesn't use these kind of words. So that's all this kind of background thing that you do first. And then you start actually translating. And at some point, for example, when we worked on Zelda Skyward Sword, that was very interesting because it was a simultaneous release worldwide. So we worked on an unfinished version of the game. And we saw the changes that the development team in Japan made every week because we then had to adjust our text and stuff like that. So we were actually in the middle of development, which was really exciting because we also had the chance to give feedback to the development team and say, okay, that doesn't really make sense here, or there's a bug here and there. So we kind of helped making the game, which for us as uh, people who love games was the best thing you could do. And then I wanted to create my own games. That's why I joined a very small publisher in Japan called Spicy Soft. And then I had the chance to go over to Japan. They uh, helped me with the visa. And I was able to uh, create my own video games for Nintendo 3DS and uh, mobile apps. And what types of games were you creating? Really simple, like jump and run action kind of games. So uh, it's called Chariso, which is a very famous IP in Japan, actually. They had the games on those flip phones years ago. 
and it was really popular with kids. And I made, yeah, it's like a Mario game. So you can jump around. You, there's a lot of items you can collect and you can transform into like different types of, uh, you, you're a guy on a bike. So yeah, basically a, a very simple one. But it was very successful. It was uh, number one in the eShop, uh, the Nintendo download store for I think three or four consecutive months. And uh, we even beat like Pokemon or, or Zelda wow. in the download sure. rankings. And yeah, that was really interesting. So you eventually made your way from the gaming industry to other parts of media and entertainment by working at Oom. How did you originally meet the Oom team? Actually, before I met Oom, I was working together with a Japanese YouTuber called Hikakin. He's the, the most famous YouTuber in Japan, who eventually became the co-founder of Oom after that. But I asked him to do a promotion for one of my mobile apps. Because he's a beatboxer and he did all those crazy beatbox collaborations with Neo and, and Ariana Grande. And uh, he did a gig with Aerosmith and uh, a lot of ja- American YouTubers, actually. David Choi and Boyna Band uh, back then. So I loved him. I watched him even before I moved to Japan. And then I thought, okay, I'll get in touch with him, reach out. I wanted him to create a beatbox track for my game as background music and have him make a video about my game for yeah, his fans. Promote it. Yep. Uh, and he said, yeah, sure, let's do that. And we did it. And it was amazing. It was a really big success. We had loads of users, number one app store, blah, 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 the whole thing. And uh, two months later, when I asked him again to do some other thing with, with us, he came to me uh, as part of a company, which was Oom. At that time, consisting of three people, so our now CEO, another guy, and him. And so I ended up being Oom's first client as a brand and working with them for almost a year on three or four campaigns for my games. We even did a TV ad, uh, which was completely made by YouTubers. So we had five YouTubers to star in the ad as actors. We had the script written by a YouTuber. We had it filmed and edited by YouTubers on really super high definition blah, blah cameras for TV. So it was the first and I think the only TV ad in Japan or maybe Asia (laughs) that was made completely by YouTubers. So that was also one of the things that I did as a client. And then, yeah, I ended up uh, being in Oom's offices uh, (laughs) every once in a while. And I saw them grow and I saw all the excitement around those people. And I think the decision for me to join them was when I went to the set of that uh, TV ad and I saw those guys like just being so yeah excited about what they did and being so happy and being so passionate and i thought okay you know what i want to work with these people and uh, then i sat down with the ceo and said okay maybe that comes out of nothing but do you have any use for a guy like me i can do these kind of things and he said when are you going to join so that's how i ended up at well, that's awesome so it sounds like you recognize the power of these influential personalities on YouTube and other sites way before a lot of brands were recognizing the potential, particularly in Japan. In Japan, definitely. So you started as a client, saw that that demonstrated, and then the crossover potential to TV with traditional advertising and said, hey, I got to become a part of this. Yeah, exactly. And it was just, it felt natural to do it because I was really interested in what they did as well. Um, To be honest, before that, I wasn't watching that much content on YouTube not only in Japan, but also worldwide. So I had some channels that I watched that I found by accident in a way. One guy in Germany called Marty Fisher. He's a really cool musician uh, slash comedian. And then I was watching a few American YouTubers like Ryan Higa. He was one of my favorite. And Smosh. But that was basically it at the time. So I was not the YouTube expert or anything. I just felt, I just knew Hikakin from those beatbox videos. And I thought, maybe that's an interesting thing to do. So I didn't really have much knowledge to back that idea up at first. But, yeah. How do you think that the YouTube and overall online video landscape has changed since the days when you were first advertising as a brand and then ultimately joining Oom to now? Oh, it's amazing. It's crazy. So we started, oh, Oom was started four years ago. So that's now a story of four years. But when Oom started, there were no were just a handful of of content creators at first on the platform itself. So YouTube was a place for illegally uploaded TV stuff 
and music videos, maybe. And people also didn't recognize it as a content platform. So maybe you have the same story in the US like six or seven or eight years ago. But then we worked with Hikakin and he brought all of the people he knew to Oom. So the few content creators on YouTube, uh, he brought with him, uh, one of them being uh, Jet Daisuke, which is was the first like unboxer and tech reviewer in Japan, and Asahi Sasaki, which is the first beauty YouTuber in Japan. And they then told us, uh, for example, Asahi, she said her big inspiration is Michelle Phan. And that's how we started, you know, looking at, at YouTube as a content platform. And in order to get brands excited for that, that took a long time. So I think the first two years was, in terms of business for us, really small. We were the only company doing something like that. And we had to do a lot of, well, educating people, obviously, um, telling brands that it actually uh, would benefit them to work with with uh, digital talent. And the term YouTuber actually is something that we created because our guys call themselves YouTuber in Japan. There's a, a Japanese word for that as well, which basically is the same just in, in Japanese um, characters. It's called YouTuber. And uh, the funny story is YouTube at first didn't like that term. They wanted it to be called differently. But after our guys became so popular, basically it became a common term they that everybody it. used. Yeah. And YouTube said, okay, you know what, <laughs> just use it, it's fine. We still, after four years, have a lot of people that we work with that come to us and say, okay, I know that like this internet thing is you know, that's like big and everybody's doing it, but I have no idea. Like, how does this work? Like, what's what's a YouTuber? How, how should I work with them? So we're still two or three years behind in terms of how people see YouTube, but they've done a big effort as well. So they've done a lot of ads, TV ads, to actually advertise YouTube as a content platform. And all of those ads were featuring our talent. So you see the, the weird monopoly that we have in, in our space. But yeah, now after four years, we're doing about 150 to 160 brand videos each month with our talent, with about like 200 top YouTubers and 4,000 something like mid-tier, low-tier creators. So it's changed. Yeah, it's it changed so much. What do you think are some of the, the similarities and perhaps the primary differences between Japan and the U.S. market? A big difference is uh, the the content volume that influencers create. So our our guys, and that doesn't like I'm not speaking of a few. So basically everyone they're uploading one video a day as a rule, and some of them even more. And that's what you have to do in order to be recognized in in, in Japan or really grow your channel in Japan. That's what we tell all the low tier, small tier creators with 50, 100, 500 subscribers. You have to do it really constantly. And best thing is one video per day. And obviously that results in a different quality of the content. So you you don't have that uh, scripted content that you see, uh, for example, in the US. You don't have that much content that has uh, like production teams involved, like for example, Smosh does, or even Ryan Higa does, or all the, the big YouTubers have people helping them. They still do it all by themselves and they want to do it that way because they need to put out one video each day. So that's one big difference. Um, in terms of similarity, they, maybe what I've noticed is that the creators themselves, what they value is the same. So they value the community, both the creator community and uh, their community with their fans. That's what they really care about. They're very down-to-earth people. Even though they make a lot of money, obviously, none of them is like feeling like they're a celebrity. So they're really, they really, they, they go out on the street without anything. Uh, they don't live in expensive places. They don't drive fancy cars. They're just normal people. And some of them, or most of them, are very young because YouTube is really just picking up in the last one or two years. So two years ago was a big spike for us. Influencer count went from 200 something to 2000 something. Everything went up. Our staff as well. So when I joined Doom three years ago, two and a half, we had 35, six staff. Uh, so in the company, we have 180 now. And a hundred of them uh, joined us within the last year. And that's kind of the same growth curve that we see uh, in the space in our views, 
in our company, so in all the verticals. So we talked now about the differences between Japan and the U.S. What are some of the differences between Japan and other parts of Asia? There's so many differences. For example, if you look at APAC, so Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, all those countries, each country is totally different. So, um, for example, in Japan, the biggest platform for content on a digital content is YouTube. And the next one is actually Twitter. Twitter is huge in Japan. All the influencers have Twitter accounts. They use it every day. They upload not only uh, pictures and stuff, but really short form video in a way that's growing as well. And uh, Facebook is not there at all. It's not a content platform in Japan. There, yeah. is, there is content like Tastemade or there's a, a brand called Delish Kitchen, which is similar. But you don't talk to people and they say, yeah, I'm always watching this on Facebook. Does it happen? And especially for influencers, none of our guys has a Facebook page. I think just Hikakin made one years ago and doesn't use it. So in terms of platform, for example, if you go to Indonesia, Instagram is really big, much, much bigger than it is in Japan. If you go to Taiwan, then Facebook is huge. They're still doing blogs uh, in Taiwan. So really the traditional blogs. If you go to Vietnam, uh, still YouTube is going to be big, but it's going to be a lot of music. Like the music uh, content is huge there and kids content is huge uh, in Vietnam. So it's different in each country. And what we've seen so far, um, one of the reasons also is that internet connectivity is different in all those countries. So we went to Vietnam uh, for a business trip because we have a partner in Vietnam that we license content to. And we had 3G. <laughs> so that was the best you can get on the way. So it was really hard for us to kind of, you know, stream stuff. So that's why Instagram or our content that is more like based not on video, but on, on picture or on text is much more popular there. That's really exciting. So each country is totally different. It's an interesting space because you, you touched on the infrastructure differences between the countries. There's also yeah. significant cultural differences, right? Yes. Language barriers. Absolutely. So, you know, how do you think about that as a as an APAC player? Are you planning to expand to other regions? Um, not in the way that we say oh, we're going to build offices everywhere because what we've seen, we have a lot of friends, especially uh, in Singapore. A lot of the U.S. MCNs actually have their Asia office in Singapore, like Maker is there, Style Hall is there. Uh, and we're good friends with Gush Cloud as well, who's very, very big in the region. So what we decided as a strategy is basically partner with, with those players in all the regions. For example, if a client from Japan, one of our clients says, I want to do this in this country, I want to launch my game in Korea and have it promoted there, then basically we're going to go to our uh, partner in Korea, which in that case would be um, CJ, E&M, a very, very big company there. And we'd be kind of the agency uh, in between. And we've seen that to be... Uh, very, very successful. We started this just a few months ago, but just recently we had a big campaign in Thailand that we did with Gush Cloud. We had a huge campaign in Taiwan that we used uh, another partner that we're working with. So we are having a lot of campaigns also with big uh, US partners, actually. One of them was for The Walking Dead, which came from an agency here in Los Angeles, actually. Yeah. That's our strategy because we've seen if you really want to go there and have actually work in those markets on your own, you need to have people on the ground in each of these countries. Mm. You can't just go to Singapore or to Tokyo or whatever and say, I'm going to manage APEC from here. It's not going to work. And it's difficult to scale to so many different markets. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it, it would be interesting for us to do, but honestly, we don't know that much about these markets. So we'd have to start from zero in, in markets where you have a lot of emerging players anyway. And we are the strongest uh, player in Japan. Whatever you want to do with influencers, you'd have to come to us as a necessity if you look at the share that we have. So we thought, okay, let's keep that position. Let's build that even stronger. Let's help the market grow in Japan. Let's become multi-platform in Japan because now we're 90% YouTube, 8% Twitter, and 2% Instagram. Mm, wow. <laughs> and we, we want to change that for the next few months and years. And Everything that's happening outside, let's partner with uh, companies who want to work with us, who see a mutual benefit. So we also do it the other way around. They say, for example, we have a global brand deal coming from a company in Singapore, and Japan is one of their regions. Then obviously we say, okay, here are our influencers. You can work with them through us. So we're helping each other out. And I think that's the best way to do it. 
Uh, in addition to advertising video on demand through, say, YouTube, yeah. are you exploring subscription video opportunities or other business models? It's something that we've seen a lot when I came here to LA last year, and I was really excited and, and uh, fascinated by all the amazing content that is out here, out there, here in, in the space. But it's, I think it's going to take a while for that to, to come to Japan as well. We've actually tried that once. I was meeting with all the big content players here, for example, Awesomeness TV or, or name every, name anyone. And what we were trying uh, was to, if it makes sense to, for example, take their shows that they have here and maybe localize them because Japanese are, people are very used to watching content with subtitles. So it doesn't have to be a voiceover. It doesn't have to be dubbed. And, and is that primarily English content or? You yeah, it was primarily Korea, English Vietnam. content at uh-huh. that time. Okay. Um, because it was like Hollywood movie quality. Uh, so we thought, and it's short form. So Japan is very mobile focused. So we thought that's, that works perfectly. So we wanted to pitch that to um, platforms in Japan if they were interested. They were all very interested in the content, but it didn't really match in terms of uh, the numbers that they were willing to pay and the numbers that the content holders were expecting to, to make because the market is still very underdeveloped in Japan. And for us, in terms of scripted shows and uh, owned and operated content is something that we are starting now. So we have a few things in the making, actually. But it's all baby steps. And in terms of subscription content, so there's no YouTube Red yet in Japan. Uh, that's going to come at some point, but it's not there yet. Well, yeah, if you look at like all the video on demand platforms or subscription platforms like Netflix, Hulu, mm-hmm. name it. Yeah. They're in Japan, obviously, and I think they're doing well, but it's not that big yet. So you can't compare the, mm. the power that Netflix has in the US to. Than it, what it has in, in Japan. So even the the more popular traditional OTT services yeah. are not quite established there. So I would imagine the short form OTT yeah. plays like full screen and go ninety. No, not not at all. So yeah. go ninety, you can't watch it in Japan, unfortunately. So I always have to use VPN <laughs> if I want to watch it, which I do. But yeah, it's uh, it's something that uh, is is not there yet at all. Are you finding that the content you're producing has strong export value outside of Japan? That that maybe Go ninety would be interested in licensing Japanese content. Uh, that I think the the content that our influencers make uh, right now um, not that much because it's very tied to them as a personality. So you'd have to be a fan or you have to want to become a fan of that specific person in order to enjoy the content. There's obviously a few uh, creators who make more well, con- content that will be uh, exportable to other languages. And that's what we try, actually. So that's why we're selling a lot of kids content to Vietnam and Thailand. Also as a small partnership with a player there. Uh, maybe looking at going into other countries like China, who have a lot of money and want a lot of content. But um, in terms of competing with content here in the U.S., I think we'd have to raise the level of the content that we make. And actually, there's one show that we've uh, made recently as a, well, it was an experiment. Um, It's called Suisei, which means like a shooting star. And it's a four-episode short-form scripted show made by an influencer called Hiroki. He's one of our YouTube creators, and he's also an employee of Oom. He works in our creative editing team. And he loves to do script writing. He's more of a director, actually. And so he wrote that show, which is a show about a musician who has some problems, personal problems, and uh, he's not he's he has problems finding his motivation. And then he meets an old friend, and they kind of form a band, and blah, blah, blah. So like a teenage kind of story. The interesting part about that was we used, or we worked with a lot of top YouTubers uh, because Hiroki is friends with all of them in Japan. So all the major roles were played by big YouTubers in Japan. And they wrote a number of songs that they used in the show because it's a band drama. Um, And they also sold those songs separately on iTunes. Mm. And that was actually, yeah, it was an experiment because Hiroki said he wanted to do that. And we as a company said, okay, here you go. You have 10K uh, US dollars. That's all we can give you. <laughs> See what you can make with that. And he, he really made it. And it was amazing. And that was our first try, actually. That's great. How did it perform? It was really nice because uh, we didn't... Well, the, the first thing is we didn't even have a platform 
in a way that, for example, we'd have a big company channel. Yeah, where do you release it? Sure. Uh, we just put it on our Oom company channel that we usually use to send out like notifications in a way. So we have this festival going on. Here's the ticket uh, page, blah, blah, blah. So it's not a content channel, but it was the only thing and the biggest thing we had because obviously people who like YouTube in Japan are most of them also know us as a company. So we have a lot of subscribers on that channel. That's why I put it out there. But it was viewed about well, over a million times, definitely, those four episodes. So we were very happy with it. And Hiroki was very happy with it as well. We also did a live show um, in Japan called U-Fest, where we had the members of the, of the cast perform one of the songs on stage in front of 3,000 people, which was also nice because it kind of connected to the audience. It connected to the show, stage, the songs, everything was, was uh, going well together. But in terms of making money with it, that was not the intention in the first place. So. But it sounds like a successful experiment. And in fact, the strategy that you kind of touched on, like even just uploading it to the Oom yeah. uh, main channel, because that's the best page that you have, it reminds me of the early days machinima strategy, which became the awesomeness TV strategy, building a hub channel yeah. around the brand, creating IP, producing content specific to that channel, and also highlighting yeah. uh, videos from top influencers that then promote the network of content. Yeah, that's in a way something that we're trying now. So recently we've released a platform called Oom Fans, which is still, it's basically just a page where you can, well, you can watch some like footage and you can get some photos like, offshots from influencers or events you can register for our shows uh, that we that we host uh, the live shows you can buy tickets there so it's basically a fan hub and it also connects to um, fan clubs um, pay like subscription fan clubs from uh, three influencers that we have where you can actually do meet and greets and get like like premium content and stuff like that and that's all launched this year and it's still in the making and it's still very small. There's not that much content on there yet. And we're actually trying to figure out how to put all those pieces together. So as you mentioned, an actual content platform, also our homepage, uh, the, we have two homepages, one for corporate and one for fans. And the fans one is not really updated that much. So it, it just has a list of all the influences that we have in that new section. So we're trying to find a strategy or find the best way to really become a brand as a company. So mm, and foster the, that yeah, community among the, the fans. The Oom brand. So you'd go to Oom, you'd have a lot of content. You have maybe things that we do on our own. You can have access to the influencers content. You can register as a fan. You can get uh, merchandise and everything. So it's all there in pieces, but we haven't been actually able to connect those pieces yet. So what is Oom doing in the realm of live streaming? Live streaming isn't that big in Japan, actually. So, for example, Twitch, uh, they're trying very hard. They had a huge booth at the Tokyo Game Show last year. And we're also talking to them a lot. So they're really, really uh, trying hard to grow their community. But I think we don't have a, we don't have any top influencer who is on Twitch, unfortunately. What about Periscope, given the popularity of Twitter? Not that much, really? actually, as well. So yeah. there is a, a there is a, an app called Twit Twitcast, which is not official from Twitter. It's like some tool, some app that you can use to live stream, and it's connecting to your Twitter account. So if you use Twitcast, it's gonna send the link to your Twitter feed, and your fans can log in with their Twitter handle and comment, and those comments will be shown in that Twitcast and on Twitter. So it's like connected. Uh, I think using the API, but it's not official. And that was there before Periscope was there. So that's became, that became popular with like teenagers, but it's not monetized at all. And basically people just do it like when they feel like it. So it's not like you'd have a streamer who says, okay, every day I'll do my streams. It's just, oh, you know, I'm going to sleep in 20 minutes. So I'll just do a short 10 minute, like good night stream or something like that. So live streaming is an area that is also very underdeveloped. And there's a lot of these apps, especially from, from China, the, the huge live streaming apps from Cheetah Mobile, like LiveMe, for example. They're all there in Japan, but they're not really used that much. So there's no big streamers 
it's basically people. <laughs> yeah. The, when, when I watch it, it's basically、um, foreigners. So you don't have any Japanese streamers, even if you access it from Japan. Do you think that'll change at some point? Do you think the live streaming will grow in popularity? I think so. It's something actually that we looked at from starting one and a half years ago. So when YouTube Live、uh, was introduced in Japan, we obviously asked our influencers to kind of explore that feature more. And there's some、uh, YouTubers in our network that now do regular live streams on YouTube, so on YouTube Live, but It's still a small number. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe for, for those apps like LiveMe, where the influencers, the streamers can actually make money through the gifting system, I think that's a cultural problem in Japan. So people would not, be, would not want to have people throw money at them, actually, and they would not ask for it. So you would not have a streamer in Japan, like, same like Patreon. That's something that you say, okay, I'm making this. I'm making this kind of content. Please support me. Please subscribe to my channel of $5 a month, blah, blah, blah. People wouldn't do that. And we had our influences as well when we came up with this fan club idea. Most of the people said, Yeah, I want to do a fan club, but I don't want that my fans would have to pay for it because it would divide my fans into the ones that pay. So they would be the premium fans and then everyone else. And everyone else would feel like so they're not my. Premium fans, which would put them down, which I don't want. So the mentality is very different.、Uh, and especially asking for money is something that they wouldn't do. So that's, I think, what's keeping a lot of that、um, from becoming popular. Yeah, it sounds like there's some cultural nuances that, that would prevent Japanese from embracing live streaming in the way that other cultures have. Yeah, I think that's the, the big reason. And the, I think the first、uh, step to make live streaming more popular. I think should be gaming. But now, for example, if you look at esports, it's the same thing. Esports isn't big at all in Japan.、Um, there's a lot of reasons. One of them is that Japan is very mobile, not, a, not, not that many PC gamers, a lot of console though, but still.、Uh, second reason is that I don't know the exact law, but you're not allowed to pay out prize money. For, like, for example, esports tournament. That's why the whole industry for, in terms of esports isn't really growing that much. So we're in the same building as、uh, Riot Games, they're in the、uh, same office building. So we've met them quite a while. We've heard a lot of things that they talked about esports at panels in Japan. And they're all really trying very hard, but it's a very, very small niche thing. But people are playing League of Legends, they're just not. Consuming. Yeah, but still, it's not that much. It's not as big as if, if you would look at like China or Korea, it's yeah, yeah. crazy.、Uh, compared to that, you would have a lot of gamers that don't know League of Legends in Japan. Wow. So it's not、That's、almost hard to imagine. Yeah, it's not, it's not at all as famous <laughs>、sure. as, as here. So I think that kind of goes along with the live streaming thing as well. So if,、yeah. if one of those two things would crack up, then maybe. They'd see a big boost. It's really interesting for us, and we want to kind of tap into that as well. But, well, as long as you don't have people who want to produce content and、so、who want to stream, it doesn't make sense to force them. What does the future hold for you? For us, the big thing that we're now、uh, really trying is to open up to more platforms、uh, than just YouTube. People will really associate us to you- with YouTube、uh, in Japan, and that's a good thing because. We're really good friends with them, and we're never gonna be off YouTube, I think. But we see a lot of different interesting things in other countries happening here, also done by different people, maybe. So I don't think our YouTubers will all gonna go to Instagram, become Instagrammers. We want to help a new type of influencer, a new type of content creator. To make their hobby or make their passion into a living. And that is what we'd call social influencers. And that would include like mobile app streamers, that would include Instagrammers,、uh, and maybe、um, also some other platforms that you don't have in the US. There's an app called Snow, which is basically the Japanese Snapchat. Actually, it's a Korean app, but it's very popular in Japan. So we're now figuring out how to. Work with these platforms and help all those 15, 16 year old high school girls、um, who do awesome things to really do this in a more professional way and help them to grow. So that's one thing. And for me personally, obviously, is making UM more global. So that's a huge project for me、uh, and for our company. And 
they're all actually very excited. So our CEO was here for E3 as well. And he loves Santa Monica. So he says, if we're ever going to have an office outside of Japan, it's going to be Santa Monica. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's why. Can't blame him. <laughs> yeah, he, he loves it. Um, and so, um, but that's also, um, now we have a lot of partnerships with foreign companies. But in terms of really becoming global as Um, we would need some of our influencers to actually tap into that global audience. Now, our audience is 98 point something percent Japanese. We have two point something billion views, I think 2.4 billion views every month, only on YouTube, and that is all Japan.、Um, so the numbers put us in number 12 or 13 of the worldwide MCN ranking, if you look that up, with one country, because they're all putting up content every day, every day, every day with like, thousands of people. But there's different、uh, ways of making content. You don't have to do it every day. It can be more relaxed, it can be more. Uh, rich content, more premium. And I, th- I feel that our top guys starting to kind of they feel that burnout from doing this for several years each day without having one day off, without taking any break. So there will be a point when our guys say, okay, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I see that this is coming. So I want Um to be prepared to say, okay, you know, we have these partners that we can do this kind of content with, we have these kind of information. We saw these things happen in other countries. So let's learn from that before they actually happen. Yeah, and help those creators make that transition. Yeah. And for example, if we could tap into a global audience, for example, if some of them, we could help them localize their content, make an English channel without them having to do that much、uh, effort. So where we can step in as, as, as their partner and help them to, for example, manage their English channel. Then they could tap into that new audience, which would then relieve them from that stress of having to do this every day and getting the same result or a better one and having even more fans all around the world, maybe have the chance to travel to a different country for a brand deal or for a collaboration with another YouTuber、um, and kind of get out of their rooms that they stay in 24 7. So that is my big mission, actually. If you were a YouTuber starting a channel, what would you、uh, create content about? I actually have a channel. Ah, very good. Here's your chance to promote it. What's your channel called? <laughs> well, my, name, my channel is called、uh, Rene Hiko,、uh, but it's, it's a nickname、uh, in, in Japanese, but it's all in Japanese. So I don't know how much sense it makes to promote that. But yeah, I'm just talking about、uh, it's like a vlog. So I started that out of interest because when I was working with all those low tier, mid tier YouTubers in Japan, building up this creator network. I wanted to know like, how their daily life is, how they feel, how it feels to get a comment. It was exciting. So I was so happy when I got 100 subscribers. And、uh, that's why, for, for me, in our team, this network team, and we really work with like 13 year old kids who just started their channel and、uh, really find those raw diamonds and polish them、um, and help them. But for me, as a rule, or I made a rule in our company, my, my team was not allowed to say, This channel only has 50 subscribers or, or only has 100. So, in comparison to other channels, because having 100 people sit, coming to you and say, This is cool, what you do, I like it, is amazing. So, that's why I said, you said he has 100 subscribers. There's no only or just or something like to, to kind of diminish the diminish power, the of, power that. of that.、Yeah, sure. It's amazing. Go out on the street, start playing guitar, and have 100 people come and listen. That's pretty much, yeah, that's、exactly. pretty difficult. So that's why I wanted to do that、um, myself. And I have 14,000 subscribers now. Wow, congratulations. Maybe it'll be 14,001 after that. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Maybe. I'm going to subscribe. I want to check it out. But yeah, the thing is that now being、uh, a dad、mm-hmm. and being all around the world for Oom, I actually also did. A video per day for most of the time after I started the channel. And then I had to take some breaks.、Uh, and then I came back and again did a lot of videos. And now break time again. I actually thought I'd vlog from the US. Yeah, you should, especially some of these events you're attending. Yeah, I wanted to, but it's like for me, it was、um, when I come home, the first thing I do、uh, after my meetings here, I Skype with my,、uh, my wife and my son. Um, because the time difference to Japan is 16 hours. So when it's 5, 6 p.m. here, they wake up. So then I Skype and then I just fall asleep.、Mm-hmm. So、I haven't had the chance to do that. <laughs> I don't blame you. And what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the future of the online video industry, what do you see coming? 
But I think uh, creators, uh, content creators are going to get more powerful because in the end, uh, content is, they, they own the content. They, they basically own this space. That's why we are always feeling very, very grateful for them to work with us as a company. Because if they wouldn't, if they wouldn't be there, we'd have nothing to sell. We'd have nothing to work with. So I think creators are going to be more powerful and hopefully more recognized, not only by, you know, those fancy millennials and generation, whatever, but really by a more broad audience, um, because what they do is so amazing. And I think the second thing is it's going to all come back to the traditional uh, media, like television and uh, movies uh, and the, the big productions. Because in Japan now, that's two different things. There's television and there's online. And what I see here in the U.S., like, it's a little bit like starting to kind of come back or mix in, yeah, in it's a very converging now and interesting we're seeing way. Audiences, it's content. They want to consume it whenever yeah. they want. It doesn't matter what it is. And I think both sides have something to offer. So it shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be a competition. It should be a partnership. And I hope it's, and I think it's going to end up being that way because both sides in a way have something to uh, get from the other and, and learn from the other. So that's um, one of the things that I'd love to see happen. Uh, I'd love to see one of our YouTubers star in a, in a feature film or something and doing something for a completely new audience in a new way. That would be very, very cool. It's hopefully going to be more global. You know, being a translator myself, I see all this technology that does auto-translate and uh, helping content to be uh, international and more accessible for everyone. And when I was a translator, I really hated that <laughs> because <laughs> it, job, huh? it took away my job. But fortunately, I'm not a translator anymore. Sorry to all the translators. I want this to become more yeah, accessible. So you could watch a YouTuber from Bangladesh you've never seen before and with automatically created subtitles you can understand uh, and then comment in your language and that's shown in on his YouTube page in his language and he can respond. Um, I want the world to be more connected. Yeah, that's really powerful. I want everyone to be friends. And I think that's going to happen. YouTube's uh, tr- uh, working hard to for their translation feature, so they're putting a lot of effort into that and helping uh, creators to localize their content by themselves or have the community do it. I'm sure that's going to happen at some point. And that's what I'm, it's not a prediction. It's something that I want to happen. Sure. I think those are all, you know, you hit the nail on the head. You're talking about growing power, of the influencer convergence between online video and more traditional media. And then of course, globalization of content. Yeah. It's all happening. And for us in Japan, especially with being this, weird islands somewhere in the east that all people think they're like crazy but very hard to reach because that's what I've experienced coming here to the uh, everyone tells me finally I meet someone from Japan because I had this opportunity a while ago and I reached out to some people but I didn't get a response I didn't know who to talk to and we see that so many times and it's so sad because we could help so, so many companies and creators here to do exciting things with us or with our influencers and the other way around. So especially for a company, Japan being this kind of very unique market, I'd love to see that open up more. And I'm, I'll, I'll do my best to, You're making to, it happen. to, to make it happen. Well, that's yeah. right. So if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I'll be a content creator, obviously. <laughs> as a, as a, I'll really try if I if I have some kind sure. of talent. That's your passion. That's um, what you get excited about. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm a creator actually. In a way that all the jobs that I've ever done had to do, do something with creating something. So as a translator, obviously you're creating text, obviously based on 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 something that's there, but you still have to write it in your own words. You have to write it in your own style. Mm-hmm. You have to make it sound interesting. And not like a translation, because what the text that I did was uh, comics. I translated comics, like Japanese manga comics and games. So if, if a player in Germany plays a game, he, he, the, the worst thing that he could experience is it's a bad translation. And the second worst thing is it's a good translation. He shouldn't feel like it's a translation. So it's just content, it's text um, that delivers a kind of motion message, whatever. And then after that, I created games. And as a hobby, I actually create a lot of games myself. 
there's a software called RPG Maker, which is a tool that you can just buy off Steam and uh, you can create your own RPGs in a very, very cool way. There's a lot of people around the world doing that. It's a, it's a Japanese software, but they have it in English. And I was actually hired by that company a few years ago to create an English game for their English product for the uh, US version as a sample on the disc. It was on the disc to show the people who bought that for the first time what you can do with it. I love to write music. I was uh, in a band for six years back in, in Germany. What do you play? I was vocal. Oh, you're the singer. Um, Very good. Not not that good. Oh, I was um, say we have to go to karaoke or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I play the piano a little bit. Not Also not that good. So I'm, I'm an amateur in all these things. I'm not a professional game designer, but I somehow ended up doing it. I'm not a professional writer, but I have my own comic published in Germany, which is called Soul Sanctum. And it won the German Manga Award 2012, which was, I don't know. Not a big thing. Congratulations. But, but I, no, have trophy. Yeah. I have a trophy. I have a trophy. So I like to create things. I would definitely be a content creator if I'd have the chance. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed is not just the creative process, but you're a storyteller, right? The Through translations and through creating games and creating mangas and also doing vlogging that you're you're creating a narrative and you're sharing the story with well, us. I just like to talk a lot. I don't know whether or not it. it's interesting, but I, I like <laughs> to talk a lot. And Renee, where can people find out more about you and more about Oom? Well, I think if you if you Google Oom, U-U-U-M, you should be able to reach our English homepage, which is just a, like a landing page I created a year ago. Because when they asked me, do something global, and I said, yeah, I'm going to do that. We don't even have an English page. Um, so I made that page. Uh, it's very simple, but you can reach me with the email contact. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, but I think my name is very hard to spell. So I don't know if I pop up on YouTube, but just look uh, for, for Oom on, on LinkedIn. And I think you can find me as well. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking some time to share more perspective on Japan and on yeah, your global sure. experiences. Anytime again, uh, it was a pleasure for me. I was very happy to talk to you. Yeah. It's great. It's terrific because this is the culmination of many months of getting to know each other over Google Hangouts and Skype calls. Yeah, and yeah, and absolutely. And it was so nice meeting you finally after yeah, almost almost a year. Yeah, close to it maybe, yeah, perhaps. Close to a year. Yeah. True. Which I think just means that I need to come visit Tokyo soon. You have to. <laughs> and I, I think I, t- I told you last time when we had uh, dinner together but you were so kind to invite me, so I have to return the favor now, so you have to come to Japan. Why, thank you, of course. <laughs> I'm overdue for spending some more time in Tokyo. Awesome, uh, Renee, this sure. is amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Bye.